The kettle's boiled, Vic. Great. Perfect timing. Just a dash of milk for me, please, mate. Here you go. Shall we get started, then? Have you ever woken up on a Sunday morning and said, I'm never drinking again, and then found yourself waving 50 bucks at a barman by happy hour? Are you wondering why everyone else can stop at one, while you head to a dodgy after-party with a weird bloke called Disco Dave? If so, it might be time to take a deeper look at your relationship with your reliable social crutch, alcohol. On each episode, we'll investigate our own dysfunctional dealings with booze and find out if it's possible to stop this deeply ingrained habit before things get too messy. Yep, we're going to open up a shame shed of humiliating drinking stories to help you understand why waking up from a booze coma each weekend with a kebab sticking out of your top pocket might actually be negatively impacting your health. Hamish and I are here to delve into what it's like being sober. An unwanted warts and all look into why giving up those cheeky pints or putting down those mummy wines will make you feel happier, help your anxiety and mental health and turn you into the most sparkly authentic version of you. Won't that mean I become boring though, Vic? Well, Hamish, we'll just have to wait and see. I'm Victoria Vanstone. I'm Hamish Adams-Cairns. And this is Sober Awkward. So here we are, Hamish, in a different studio. We've been thrown out of our booth and we're in some sort of luxury recording studio. I know. This all feels a bit professional. We are in very what looks like a music studio. There is a drum kit outside. There is one of those desks that is about two metres long with a million buttons on it. Yeah. Have we gone up in the world? I sort of miss our... I'm not sure. (laughs) What The thing that looks a bit like a Lou cubicle of Allen's. I miss the last recording booth. Yeah, we missed the pile of boxes and the bad recording equipment, but here we are. I don't know how it sounds. Hopefully it's going to be great. Um, it's real luxury compared to the booth, isn't it, today? Yeah. I mean, I'm the- spread-eagled here, aren't I? <laughs> I can actually reach out and touch the walls like I'm... I'm feeling pretty uh, relaxed. I know. It doesn't really matter to the listeners, given this is an audio form, but it looks great. We'll, set, we'll get a pic. We'll get a yeah. pic in a minute of us looking <laughs> looking swish. Um, so this is the episode, Hamish, where, in fact, we've had a six-week break in between the last episode. And you have been away in England on the biggest challenge of Sober Awkward, yes. which was three weddings, seeing all your mates, seeing all your family, loads of parties, introducing your baby – all of the other stuff mm-hmm. as a sober young male. Yes. How did it go? Oh, there is there is so much to unpack in that trip mm. that I learnt a lot about myself as a sort of sober person within this whole within this whole challenge. But I think the thing that I would like to focus on first would be the weddings. So I'm I'm going to talk about the trip over the next few episodes. I think. But okay. Let me talk about the weddings first because, firstly, I thought they would be the hardest thing. Mm. I thought that is. The Mecca. Hardest thing to do sober, surely, is being sober at a wedding, which they were not. The hardest thing is actually the everyday things, the sunset drink on a holiday. The not, We were staying in like uh, near Montepulciano, which oh, is my lovely. favourite word to say Excellent. of all the word. Montepulciano, which is in Tuscany and is famous for wine. Mm. So we were staying in a place oh, that's gosh. surrounded by vineyards. Yeah. And I was staying with my parents and there'd be you know, a glass of wine at lunch. Those were harder for me than the weddings. But... Right. Quick couple of stories from the weddings. Excellent. The second wedding I went to, I threw up. Oh, God, why? 
I've got no idea. I was in quite a serious conversation with someone. And during it, I sort of felt a bit hotter and I felt a bit hotter and I under my tie and I rolled up my sleeves. <laughs> and then I, they just told me they were going to wear this beautiful dress at another wedding the following weekend. Yeah. And I thought, I, I literally said, okay, I'm sorry. I know that I, if I don't run out the room now, I'm going to throw up on your dress. So I ran out and I threw up outside. What, was it the dress sober. that horrible? Oh, nice dress. Nice dress. <laughs> what caused you to vomit? I have no idea. I, I cannot believe that you vomited at a wedding where you weren't drinking. Yeah. And the worst thing is, is I ran outside. It was one of those ones that was like bursting out of my mouth as I ran through the marquee. So I was holding it in. I then, I found a van outside and I threw yeah. up along the, in between the wall and the van is where oh, I threw up. Think, I'll get away with it. Ten minutes later, the van left. <laughs> So it's just everywhere you can it see it. It was just there, yeah. So well, that... I'm, quite, I'm kind of, my old me, my drinking me is kind of proud that yeah. you're still kind of carrying the torch, you know, and still being sick even though you don't drink anymore. Well, weirdly, the, the difference between throwing up at a wedding sober and throwing up at a wedding drunk is that I felt re- like the need to tell everyone. So I told everyone at the wedding, I just threw up. I just threw up outside <laughs> on the gravel. I'm the, I'm the only person here not drinking. I threw up all over the gravel. So, I bet they were like, back off, mate. Yeah. It probably means you're quite ill. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. And then, so that was that was quite an interesting experience, but something I'm, I'm fairly proud of. And then the third wedding I went to, I drank the bar dry. Right. Which sounds pretty cool. I'm I'm starting to get nervous. You need to explain more. <laughs> okay. Well, it was it was the sort of party the night before the wedding. So this was the one in Italy and it was sunset and overlooking the Montepulciano, Channel, overlooking <laughs> Tuscany. And they only bought six non-alcoholic beers. That's the sort of catch. There was only six. I drank four of them. Right. And then one of my best mates who was the designated driver drank the other two. Okay. But, you know, when I went back for what turned out to be number seven, they said, sorry, mate, you drunk the bar dry. Which, to me, because I've never been able to drink a bar dry as a drinker, yeah. I felt kind of cool. Yeah. I felt like I'd achieved something that day. Who would have thought you'd have achieved that in your sobriety? I know. <laughs> although, the, although the actual wedding day, I, what I, nothing I learned... I think I do, you know, we, we talked about non-alcoholic drinks and how some people need them and some people don't. And yeah. they can be good and can, can be bad. I discovered that I am someone that does like them because on the wedding day, which was the day after that I, I drank the bar dry, they only had two drinks options for mm. non-alcoholic drinkers. One, a lemon-flavoured water and one, a mint-flavoured water. Oh, and I'm, that I'm, I'm partial to mint water. <laughs> when you're surrounded by champagne... It's yeah. real hard to get excited about going between the two waters, is yeah. what I found. <laughs> yeah, that's slightly depressing. Yeah. I ended up drinking a lot of ginger beer that night. Okay, ginger beer is a good one. Ginger beer is an all like a, a completely separate type of high to any drug or booze out there, I think. Yeah, I was going to say it probably should be classified as a class A. <laughs> I was off my nut on ginger beer that night. So much. It's more sugar than Coca-Cola. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah, it's driving. It's crazy juice. Yeah, but the yeah. plus side is I was owning the dance floor on ginger beer. Oh, yes. Yeah, so did you get up and dance? I did. I did. Well, the first wedding, I'd forgotten that the groom doesn't really like dancing. Right. So there was no, like, dance floor. There wasn't a first dance. Dancing wasn't really a part of the whole event. So that was quite easy. I meant to give you a reminder before you went say when we say do the first dance I mm. meant to say don't do the dance before the bloody bride yeah. well there's a photo <laughs> which I put up on one of our stories but I'll post it properly of the first dance the second wedding I went to and it is literally the bride and groom and then me in the middle of them <laughs> now I think they're on people's I think it was like the sort of the bit of the song where it kicks in yeah. and they got on people's shoulders and the whole crowd came in and I'm in the middle of them <laughs> I feel like it's the three of ours first dance. <laughs> so I need to show you that photo. Yes, uh, please. Yeah, and then the fourth, sorry, the third wedding was, yeah, was ginger beer drunk. 
Okay. Ginger beer, can we call it ginger beer drunk? I think that I should think be a can. term. So yeah, that one, can, I was yeah. all over the dance floor. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was only. God, I bet everyone was like, gosh, what's wrong with Hamish? Well, I. Yes, but I actually get such a buzz off that. I could see people on the outskirts of the dance floor who know me who are going, he's not even drunk. Yeah. That guy's not even had a drink. And I I kind of get a buzz off that. Yeah, Yeah. they're impressed because they. People feel like they can't do that, but it's not until you go sober that you realise you can do everything you ever did drunk without a drink inside you. And that is a really incredible stage to get to in your sobriety because it's so liberating. Mm. You can do whatever you want. True. You don't care. And also, I think a lot of us sober folk feel nervous about looking like a dick on a dance floor. What I've discovered is I specifically like looking like a dick on a dance floor. Yep. So even when I was drinking, being like the one doing weird dance moves to make yes. people smile, that is that is my move. Actually, so- that, and we are that person. Like yeah. I was that person doing the stupid dance moves and doing the robot and doing all those things. And I thought I needed to be drunk to do that. But actually, I still do that now. Yeah, that yeah. is actually who I am. I am the piss take dancer. It's quite a liberating thing to realise about yourself. It is. It's huge. It's massive. Being... It means you don't have to drink again. Yeah. Yeah. We'll anyway, anyway. anyway, that's, oh, that's a, sort of a, a, a long, short snippet of my trip home. Yeah. Oh, so God. I'll reveal more as we go on. But you've also been busy since I've been away. You've had this yeah. big sober event. Tell me about it. Um, yeah, well, I went away on a sober women's retreat, which we organised on my cuppa platform. And it was 15 women that had never met each other before. And I'm just going to describe the little moment we had, which I just found so fascinating. We all arrived at this lovely house sort of in the middle of nowhere in the Noosa hinterland. It was really nice. There was a room that looked a bit like a sort of sex den. I was going to say, I was thinking this already sounds a bit serial killer. It was a little bit strange. So the last, it was last come, last served sort of deal. So I got the nice double bedroom because I arrived early. Okay, yeah, And then the last person was kind of put in a sort of this box room which had bunk beds and weird sort of 90s peach mm. furniture. And <laughs> yeah. bloodstained sheets. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we called it the cage all weekend. <laughs> Who's in the cage? <laughs> yeah. And we called it the pass out house because it was actually the sort of house where, as if you're a drinker, it was all right to pass out in. But being sober, it's like, oh, actually, these bunk beds are a bit <laughs> awkward. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things that kept coming up actually was, God, imagine if we were all drinking, these 15 women all together, all drinking. It would have been a total disastrous weekend. Mm. But actually, there was a moment when everybody arrived. We all stood around. Everybody looked really nervous. And I just said, right, this is this is why we drank. This emotion we're feeling right here is why we numbed out. Because it's awkward. It's socially awkward. It is the epitome of sober awkward, Hamish. Did you have some sort of sober icebreaker get to know the group exercise what well, did you do well we did but I first of all I like I registered the moment and said this is why we yeah. drink and everyone's like yes I said right we're going to get over this this will pass we're going to kind of like fight through it and my friend the lovely Anita who came along who is a cup of legend she is a quiz host in Melbourne I didn't even know and she'd organized this quiz and once the quiz started we all started laughing By the end of the weekend, we were all just really good mates. And I felt like there was a closeness between us because we'd shared all of our stories. I mean, in that situation, you just have to ask someone once, why are you here? Mm. And you get the full story. And that connects you. No matter our differences or where we're from or what jobs we did or do, our differences didn't matter anymore. What 
mattered was that we had all struggled with alcohol and that we were all here for a reason. And that was enough for us to have this incredible bond. So we'll be doing that again. It was a beautiful weekend. Hello to all you beautiful ladies. It was so fabulous. I can't even tell you. But yeah, so that's kind of what we're talking about today. We're going to look into friendships, sober ones and ones with alcohol and how we navigated them throughout our lives. Because this week's episode is about such a big topic as friendship, we're going to try and break it up into two parts. So this will be the first half of our conversation. What happens to friendships when booze has been flushed down the U-bend? Gosh, that is a mouthful. This topic is something that's discussed on the cuppa community often. People ditch the grog and suddenly old friends begin to fade away. The phone doesn't ring as much, there are not as many notifications popping up on your socials, and the invite to the lads' weekend away seems to have got lost in the post. All of this can make you feel a little bit like a boring Billy No-Mates. It sure can. Or you'll be pleased to hear the total opposite happens and your friends surprise you by being totally supportive about your alcohol-free life. You create better connections and because all of your fantastic new hobbies, you make loads of new mates. No matter what happens, it's clear navigating friendships in sobriety is an intricate an often confusing experience. Absolutely. The reason we want to discuss friendships today is because Vic, now and in the past, has struggled finding where she fits in. As for me, being sober and a young male in a society where all my mates drink has the potential of being pretty confronting. I don't want to be a party pooper, Vic, but of course, if I say a fizzy water with a twist of lime for me, mate, that's exactly how I'll be perceived. I risk being rejected for being the sober guy. Yeah. It certainly is frustrating being sober sometimes, Hamish. Gosh, don't worry, I will still be your mate. Thanks, Vic. We hope by being open about our friendship histories, our struggles and our wins, you can go away understanding when a friendship is right for you and when it does not align. We also want to chat about how we bond now without slurring over a third bottle of red wine and how we manage to have relationships that are rewarding, fun and healthier for everyone involved. So what is the definition of friendship, Vic? Oh, I actually loved researching this because I do struggle with my friendships a little bit. So it was a really fascinating topic for me to delve into. I had a look online and found some very unemotional definitions of what friendship is. The Collins Dictionary, for example, it just said it's a relationship between two people. That's your favourite book. You're always reading Yeah, <laughs> it's my favourite. It's only because I only have to read one word, you see. <laughs> but we all know it's much more confusing than that. Then I found a quote from a psychologist in from the Northern Illinois University, and this represents the intricacy of friendship much better. She says, friendships are relationships that involve two very critical dimensions, interdependence and voluntary participation. As anyone who's ever been in a friendship knows, it's a complex process and experience. True friendships are hallmarked by each member's desire to engage with each other. It's about mutual interest in one another's experiences and thoughts, as well as a sense of belonging and connection. Friendships require reciprocity. Uh, reciprocity? What do you think about that one? This is maybe our favourite word of the whole episode. <laughs> we know it's talk about being reciprocal. It's spelled reciprocity. Reciprocity? We're going to go with reciprocity. Connection. We'll just <laughs> yeah. keep it at that. Connection twice. <laughs> yeah. Double amount of connection. Of admiration, respect, trust and emotional and instrumental support. Yeah, it's not all it seems, Vic. Friendships are deeper and more complicated than we first imagined and they can go wayward quite easily. 
When communication breaks down and friends do something weird, like giving up drinking, that respect, trust, and connection gets tested. I guess that's what we're really talking about today. When these bonds are tested, who comes out on the other side? Are we still holding hands and skipping into the sunset with the people we love, or are our friends going to bail at the first sign of boring? Let's start by talking about our own complex friendship history. Vic, you seem like a social butterfly. I'm sure you've got hundreds of mates all shoving each other out the way like grannies at a car boot sale to spend time with you. Well, that is sort of true, Hamish. Like the sober crew, like I feel like huge support from people I don't know, mm-hmm. actually. People that I haven't met online, which is kind of strange, I know. Sure. But I'm going to disappoint you a little bit here, I think, Hamish. Yet I've, again. Yeah, yes again. For <laughs> <laughs> the fourth time today. <laughs> yeah, I've always struggled with friendships, actually. I never really know where I stand with people and I always want to spend more time with them than they want to with me, which is... that's quite sad. Yeah, it's a bit sad. (laughs) I just get overexcited, Hamish, (laughs) if I like someone. And then I end up having expectations. You know, I want callbacks and I want texts and I want certain things. And I'm always left disappointed when, you know, there's people lose interest. Things never seem to weigh up with me in friendships. I think I need to explain a little bit about myself here, Hamish. Please do. Right. I've mentioned it before on the podcast. I call it the bullying situation, but whether or not it is that, I'm not really sure. Mm. It was just a situation at school where I had some really good mates and one day I turned up and they never spoke to me again. And they were my best mates in the whole world that I thought I'd be, you know, an old granny in an old people's home chatting Mm. next to them. They were my my rocks. How many of them? Just two. Mm -hmm. I was 14 or 15 at the time and I ended up with a girl alone at the lunch break, you know, on on her own, which Mm. was very, very sad for me. And I had to get the bus into school every day. I didn't have any mates all of a sudden. And I didn't realise at the time that my drinking actually changed at that point. I was drinking for frivolous reasons before. And then after that point, I think I changed to drink because of sadness and because of heartbreak. I've only realised that with months of therapy. Sure. So, well, yeah, that must have been hard. So have you spoken to them since? Was was it literally cut off and that's it? There have since been uh, an apology from them. I never found out. I never knew. That was part of the reason they just never spoke to me again. I never found out what I'd done. So I always yeah. presumed I'd done something wrong. But since then, they have messaged me like 30 years later. I well, how much say. longer were you at the school with them? It was the end of my GCSE. So it was only another six months. Okay, okay. Yeah, so and then I, I changed school. I yeah, left the yeah. school and I went somewhere else and started afresh and, and made some lovely mates. Mm. But I do think something in me changed towards drugs and alcohol at that point yeah. and towards friendships because then I started to be desperate for people to mm. like me. And that has caused repercussions throughout my friendships ever since. Yeah. And it's very strange to really pinpoint that now, but I do recognise it within me, which is why I have to sort of back off. Because if I like someone, I'm like, oh, we can really be good mates. And yeah. then they're like, whoa, she's a bit excited and a bit heavy and texting me a bit too often and I just end up backing away because then I feel embarrassed or I get scared that if we are friends that they're then going to leave me so it's all very confusing actually you're not blaming them but that was the moment that triggered something definitely I don't blame them they were just two young girls who made a poor decision perhaps that was as far as it went made a decision in the spur of the moment they didn't want to be mates for whatever reason well what do they say when they then reached out they apologised, said it was never anything that I'd done and it was just something that they thought that they would do and they didn't. she didn't even know why. Wow. Neither of them really knew why. 
And it was nice of them to message me and, and mm. to apologise. I appreciated that. And I forgave them. And I said, don't worry about it, you know. But I do recognise that that changed something in me then. I think it affected my confidence mm-hmm. and I think it affected the way I deal with people. Yeah. Yeah. So it's strange, isn't it? And then afterwards, I think I had more fair weather friendships, people that I met in toilets, you know, whilst gurning on ecstasy that I thought were my best mates for a night and then I'd never see them again. But that worked quite well for me because it meant it was damage limitation. Mm -hmm. It meant that if I was just mates with them for a night and we had a really good laugh, we had nice memories and then I didn't have to deal with any heartbreak. And that was a pattern that I started to repeat throughout my life. It was more of a fair weather thing. I'll see you. I won't see you. I'll travel. I'll leave you. And it didn't matter. And I was the same with relationships, actually. Mm-hmm. I would drop someone as soon as they were annoying. So I probably did the same thing as the girls did at certain points because of that situation. We're going a bit deep here. No, no, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I find in friendships that as I got older, I have been really desperate for stronger bonds and people that are more solid in my life, which is great because with drinking and not drinking, obviously your bonds become a bit more firm with people because you know what you've said and what you've done. Like Mm. I'm not making a tit out of myself and and being offensive to someone so I can wake up in the morning and go, oh, we're probably still mates. Whereas before with these fair weather friends, I might have gone out, acted like a lunatic, pissed someone off and anything could happen the next day. So it's much more solid now. The friends that I do have, I keep them quite close, basically. Mm -hmm. I don't put too much at stake, which means I open myself up to more heartache. My friends that I do have feel, you know, mean the world to me but I do. I am someone that needs a lot of kind of friendship care, that reciprocal thing. Like I have friends in the past that have just suddenly not messaged me and never explained to me why. And that fucks with my head. Mm. Is that a modern living thing, Hamish, you think, where people just ghost you now? Probably because we've got mobiles, so it's very yeah. clear when someone's not answering to you. Yes. Whereas I guess back in the day, you could. there are so many excuses that someone, you know, I could borrow my mum's phone to call you or letter writing. Yeah. I don't know, you know, I <laughs> yeah. guess maybe we just weren't in touch as often as we are now. Yeah. So we're more aware when someone doesn't message us for a day, a week, whatever oh, it is. And you do pain over those. Like if you send someone a message like, oh, maybe you haven't seen each other for a like, hey, let's go out for a coffee and then you don't get one back. I mean, I've had a few friendships where I've had to say, right, Obviously, the fact that you haven't got back to me means that you don't want to be mates anymore. But they're probably just busy, whereas I think the world has fallen apart. If someone doesn't text me back, I'm like, all right, this friendship's over. It's happening again. And I go into like fight or flight mode from when I was that sad teenage girl. I think I I am able to now compartmentalise my friends into ones who are good on their phones and ones who are bad. Okay, good. And as soon as you know someone well enough and you send a text saying you want to go to coffee and they say, nothing yeah then you're like okay cool you're one of them yeah don't not don't don't take it too seriously but i guess in the early stages of friendship before you've established which one they are then you might start overthinking it i'm not really an overthinker on those i guess that would happen more when i was like a teenager texting a girl yeah um but no as an adult i i'm lucky that i don't think about it too much so you don't ever freak out if someone doesn't get back not to you. really oh no. you're good i'm gonna text you but i haven't made i haven't made many mates in a while maybe maybe i just haven't felt that in a long time yeah. i'm gonna start texting you loads <laughs> yeah do do <laughs> you haven't got back to me hamish you haven't got back or just to me. don't answer any of my texts yeah, i'm just gonna just put me to really, the test. Yeah, really freak you out <laughs> oh dear yeah 
But yeah, I am a loyal friend. I will say that, and I'm an honest friend. Like if mm. someone's pissed me off, I will tell them I'm a good friend. <laughs> if you if you stick by me, I will be a good friend. Basically, I'm like a I'm like a sort of happy Labrador. Oh, that's a lovely, that's yeah. a lovely comparison. Yeah, everyone until, wants to be a lovely until you annoy Labrador. me and I'll bite your fucking leg yeah. off. <laughs> yeah. Then you're a Rottweiler. Yeah. Yeah. And I think now with sobriety, I'm getting much better at, at learning about my friendships. But we'll get a bit into that later. Mm-hmm. What about you? Well, it's funny. I actually have a similar story to you about losing a close friend. It's probably the first friend I ever lost, and I went. I was like, who's my best friend at prep school? So from like ten years old to thirteen years old, he's my absolute best mate. And then we went to two different schools and he literally never spoke to me again. And we'd gone on holiday in between the schools. You know, we left the prep school before going to the next school. We were on holiday together um, and he never, never messaged me. I would message him. and it was, I still remember his birthday every year. I don't message him anymore. Luckily, one of my best mates just had a baby on that birthday. So now so I, can, I can reconfigure that date. Of course, that makes my heart feel a bit yeah. sad. But it, and weirdly, so that holiday that we went on was we stayed with my brother's godfather in Scotland and mm. that man ended up passing away in an avalanche. So oh I texted everyone that was on that holiday and said, by the way, you know, he's passed away in this avalanche. And everyone got back, you know, I'm so sorry. And, you know, the funeral or right to, the, right to the wife or whatever. And he never answered. And I remember a few, a few weeks later, I remember being like, you know, did you get it or something? And then he sent this message saying, I can't believe you've made up the death of this guy in order to, like, reconnect with me. And I was like 14. I was like, that is... Some dark shit. Anyway, then... I'm actually, I am speechless. Yeah. Well, then, weirdly, so then in my gap year, I worked in this cigar shop in London and it was called Davidoff, a big fancy Mm. cigar shop. And one day I'm facing away from the till and this guy comes in and tries to buy a pack of cigarettes. And um, my colleague said, can I, you know, get some ID, basically, because we were 18, can I get some ID? And I turned around and it was him and I said... 10th of November 1990. I know I know who he is. I know his date of birth. Yeah. And it was him. And then during that moment in the shop, he apologised. Yeah, oh, he did? He apologised. And yeah. what did he say? Why he had just, he done it? Yeah, no reason. He just said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for, for that. I'm sorry, you know, how, how, how things turned out. He like, look, this guy really did die in an yeah. avalanche. Why would I make that <laughs> I up? I know, I know. But yeah, it's funny you say that. I wonder if as a result of that... I struggle to let friendships naturally fizzle out. You know that some friendships just naturally come to a conclusion. And I don't let that happen. And actually, when you were saying, you know, you make best friends when you're on a night out in a a toilet, I'm the guy that... (laughs) (laughs) sums me up quite well. Whilst in a toilet. No, it sums me up quite well. A night out in a toilet. I am... I'm the guy that gets their number, then texts them in the morning when you're sober. Like I'm, I'm the weird one that meets up the next day for breakfast. You know, actually takes the things that were said seriously in that oh, toilet. God. So I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think it's actually, I kind of learned that from my mum. So when I, actually, when I was in England, my mum, one of the days I was there, had a 51 year reunion for everyone that she left school with. So oh, she left cool, school when she yeah. was 18, 51 year reunion. She's still got all of their phone numbers, all of their home addresses, all of you know they've all got married once or twice since then. All, you know, she's in touch with all of them. She yeah. cannot let people go from her life. So I think it's it's a good trait in a way, yeah. but also it's a bit weird to be the guy that meets up with you the day after the night. I, I think we're kind of similar, Hamish, in the fact that perhaps we have soft hearts a little mm-hmm. bit, whereas I'm always trying to please everybody by being a good friend, which sometimes means that I get hurt yeah. or you get disappointed or you get let down because you're giving so much that you almost, your expectations become so high. 100%. Yeah, that you want more in return yeah. and you don't get it. That I, sums it up, yeah. That is exactly what I want to say, but I don't know how to say that. That sounds like a dick. I'm like, I am 
such a good friend yeah. that I expect that level of friendship back. And I very, I feel like I very rarely get it, which is such an awful I thing to say. Because it sounds like I'm disappointed with all of my friends. So anybody out there who has the same level of expectation out of their friendships as Hamish and I, we're here. Yeah, we're ready. We're ready to text you back. But isn't that awful? <laughs> I'm not kind to people because I expect it back. No, but I agree with you. I agree with you. Like if I invite someone, okay, I'm going to talk about it. It's going to come up later. But I'm going to mention it now. My parents have a rule, which is three strikes you're out. Yes, I saw this. Okay. Yeah. So their three strikes you're out is if they invite you over to their house three times and they don't get invited back. Okay. You're out. They don't contact you again. Nice. Yeah. Okay. That's how it works. That's how it works. I just thought it would be maybe they, if you do three bad things to them, you're out. No, if you don't get, if they don't get invited back. Because my mum puts so much effort in. She makes a full meal. She'll do like a six course degustation. Mm. Like she does amazing food and puts so much effort in. It's always fancy dress. It's always this incredible evening. And then nothing. She yeah. gets nothing in return. And she, in the end, she's just like, oh, fuck these people. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not having them in my life. I think that's probably quite, it seems quite hardcore, but actually I kind of respect it. I think I need to do a bit more of that. See, I feel like the worst thing a friend can do in that situation is you bring a box of chocolates yeah. because you've invited for dinner and then they get the box of chocolates and they put it in the fridge or in the cupboard and they give you the crap box of chocolates which they've got in their house. <laughs> like, that is the worst thing someone can do to me on a dinner party. Uh, my dad's mate used to always come with a uh, a bottle of sangria, which <laughs> is like the thing you buy at the supermarket in a plastic yeah. bottle in Spain, and then would sit down, put the sangria on the table and then drink all my dad's really nice red yeah. wine. <laughs> I can't remember if I told you the story about mate mine's daddy did that. Well, it's his house. We're about to go to the next door neighbours. We're having a barbecue or whatever. And he said to us, go get a bottle of wine from the cellar. So we ran down, came back. Yeah. And he goes, no, no, not that one. One from the left-hand side. That's the good stuff. Right. Oh, okay. Ran down, got the good stuff, came back up. He said, that's the one. So he came in and he knocked on the door. The hostess opened the door. He showed her the bottle. She went, oh, my God, that's so generous. I can't have a bottle of that. He then went to the back of the kitchen, opened it, drank the whole thing himself. Oh my so God. you got all the brownie points, but you didn't have to give it away. So that was that was quite a bold move. That is a bold yeah. move. One strike and you're out in that I situation. See, I sort of love it. Oh <laughs> um, dear. Yeah, the other thing, the thing I was going to say about the struggling to let friendship fizzle out yeah. is that as a result of that, you end up with like this unimaginably big circle of friends, which for me can be quite overwhelming to keep in touch with. Okay, and yes. actually, I've found that moving to the Sunshine Coast or moving... To different countries. I moved to France, I moved to Australia. And then having hardly any friends is actually kind of a relief mm. to not have to keep all of these people happy. You know, when I go back to England, there's like, oh my God, there's 40 people that I have to see. Yes, yeah. And it's freaking intense, you know. Yeah, yeah, and some of them much. you do love, but you don't love all of them, you know. Yeah. But there's something in me that I try and keep in touch with everyone, which is maybe unnecessary. Oh, gosh, we are so alike. Yeah, and some people that. say to me, he's like, how do you do it, Vicky? How do you keep in touch with everybody? Mm. I said, well, I just send a text every now and again because I want to keep in touch with people. Like, no one from my mother's group messages me. I'm always the one that's like, hey, how's everybody going? How's the babies? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. It's always me that organises everything. But then in the end, it pisses you off. It's yeah. like, why the fuck am I the person that organises everything all the time? Mm. Is everybody else happy that friendships fizzle out? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, dear. It's, it is a confusing it is, topic, isn't it? Isn't it? But then I've, I've found since moving 
to the Sunshine Coast. So we moved here from Sydney. I don't know if it's maybe Australia generally. I've struggled to make new friends up here, particularly with men. I find it, I'm finding it easier to connect with women than I am to men. I don't know if that's something in me. I don't know if it's something about Australian men, which is a horrible generalisation. But, you know, I find it hard to make friends now. Is it because we're in our 30s? Is it because we've moved somewhere people at different stages of life? I don't know. So Liz and I have this genius idea, which yeah. was have a child, they have to be your friend. Yes, okay, yeah, you've got that one connection. That's what we did. So we just created a friend. A human. Yeah, yeah which is, it's not the easy way out, but it no. is a surefire way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think also up here, I think people's friendships are established. They have lived here all their lives. They've still got their schoolmates. Like if we lived in England, we'd still yeah. hang out with all our old mates from England, wouldn't mm. we? But also here, it's funny, I was smiling when you were saying that because I also find it difficult being English in Australia because Mm -hmm. I think some of the friendship rules differ. I think as English people, our English manners come into play a little bit. Mm -hmm. Whereas if, if I invite you over to my house, Hamish, for dinner, I'm like, right. You'd be here at six thirty. Mm-hmm. Um, don't bring anything. I'll sort everything out, and you arrive. And I've made a meal. I've paid for the drinks, and it's all very, almost clinical that I've done that. It's like I'm inviting you into my home, and I'm going to be the host, and I'm going to show you a good time. Mm. And in England, that's what we do. You go to mates' houses for dinner, and they're kind of the host, and they give you a good night. Whereas here, the meetings are very casual. Okay. So it's like, yeah, mate, do you want to come round for a barbie? That is my best Very good. Australian accent yeah. there. Put another shrimp on the barbie, mate. It's been <laughs> yeah, mine, which yes. is not accurate. Come on, mate, can I put another shrimp on the barbie, mate? <laughs> Sounds Welsh. I know. And I just think the arrangements are more lackadaisical, is okay, that a word? Yeah. I just feel like they are casual and you can turn up if you want to. So this is where the problem lies, Hamish, mm. is that I've prepared a big fucking meal for everybody and then they're like, oh, sorry, mate. <laughs> Skippy got lost out bush and I have to go and take the ute and blah, blah, blah. So basically they have an excuse and they don't realise that I have put so much effort yeah. into preparing my house okay. and my home and the food and everything else. And they're like, yeah, mate, sorry, I can't make it. And I'm like... What? It's six o'clock. Yeah. I've cooked a whole fucking meal and you're not telling me yeah. you're not coming. That for me is like <gasps> heartbreaking, sort of like, oh my God, yeah. they must think I'm a mental case. And if they came and saw that I had put that effort in, they'd be like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I didn't realise that was the case. So yeah, it's definitely an English and Australian thing as well. See, that reminds me, my first Christmas here, <laughs> it was my first ever Christmas away from my family. Yeah. And Liz, whose girlfriend at the time, was super nervous. We have to make it good for home. We have to make it good for home first Christmas away. And we went to her dad's for Christmas lunch. And we got there 11 a.m. midday. It got to 7 p.m. before we realised there was no food. Oh, God. <laughs> we went for Christmas lunch there. There was no food. Well, they hadn't done Christmas lunch. No, we, had, we had some crisps about 5 p.m. Why hadn't they done lunch? Well, Australian. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> that's some how lackadaisical things had got. <laughs> it was very chill. Very chill. Oh, but you're starving. Yeah, yeah. You probably would have eaten a Brussels sprout in that uh, sort no, of situation. No, not even then. No, not, not even, even then, then. no. <laughs> uh, but no, the last point I wanted to make about friendships was, and this is this is a very sad, revealing honest thing to say. During COVID, I worked in TV, right? Mm-hmm. All of TV got shut down. Yeah. I was at a loss. I thought, I'm a pretty good friend. Yeah. Is there a job where I can be a professional friend? <laughs> <laughs> Turns out there is, there is right. in Japan. So right. in Japan, people can like, effectively rent a friend, rent someone to hang out with. I think there's a big loneliness epidemic in Japan and you can rent a friend. So I did think maybe that is my calling. 
I think that's just basically male escorting, Hamish. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't Did read you the apply? fine print. Yeah. It was a lot more lubricant than I expected. <laughs> I'm not sure that's the same thing. A special friend, did it say? Yeah. In LinkedIn, when they asked me for naked photos, I thought, hang on a minute. <laughs> hang on a minute, this isn't right. Oh, it's funny because I think what we're both saying here is that we've got a lot of love to give. Mm. Yeah. And it sometimes doesn't work out in our favour. Yeah. Yeah. I think Liz and I have said before to each other, we wish we could meet us. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, you're making me laugh because me and John sometimes sit in the car. We're like, what was that all about? Whenever we meet people, we're like, what was that all about? They're so weird. Why can't everyone just be a bit more like us, a bit more normal? <laughs> I do think we're going to have to make this into two podcasts, oh, yeah, Hamish, because like, there's so much to uncover here with friendships. Because as you can hear, I find even the people I know really well very confusing. <laughs> Like, I never know what's going on most of the time. I don't know if someone's texting me or what they want or what they mean or anything. It's a big head fuck for me. I feel like people are either going to be nodding along to this podcast and that's exactly how I feel. Or they're going to go, God, you guys are up yourself, assholes. <laughs> uh, probably. Or our friends will be going, you're not that good. Yeah. I, I know you, you're not that good. Yeah, you're annoying. <laughs> yeah. What loyalty. <laughs> Let's have a quick chat about why friendships change when you stop drinking, Hamish. Yes. There's something about new needs, which is definitely something I've discovered. The relationships before were only based on getting drunk. And of course, that's a problem when people are in a relationship as well, Mm -hmm. not just friendships. Um, Sometimes you find that the only thing you have in common with someone is the fact that you're wasted with them every day or every weekend. And that is something that's really hard to navigate. If all of your memories of someone are in a pub or in a nightclub, that's the person. It's that friend. Yeah. Those ones suddenly go, what do we do now that one of us doesn't drink? And yeah, exactly. they're the ones that seem to, to fall by the wayside. Yeah. Um, the second point we wanted to make was about stigma, the opinion that sober people generally suck. We're generally boring. And that can affect our friends that do drink and they suddenly have this impression of what the new us must be like. I mean, I've just started going to a new gym and I'm trying to make some new friends there, but I think they probably generally think I'm a boring fucking widow Mm. because I don't drink and they know what I do for a living and they're like, oh, that's weird. And they just think you're a party pooper and why would you ever want to go out anywhere? Maybe they don't think that. Maybe that's just my own Mm. paranoia. But I do feel like that sometimes because I do stand out like a sore thumb on a night out when everyone's having wines and I'm sat there with my, you know, fizzy water or what was it you had? Cucumber infused mint or something. Lemon or mint water. Lemon or mint. Rock and roll, baby. So it does make you stand out and therefore it sort of triggers that stigma. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing is that you've changed. People find change very difficult. You no longer enjoy the same pastimes as your mate, the style of socialising, the conversations change. And you've also probably swapped your days for nights like we talked about in another episode. Mm -hmm. As a sober person, you probably enjoy more connection, less noise, early nights and generally less chaos, which for your friends is probably going to be a bit annoying. Mm. A different chapter of your life has started. It can become clear that that part of your life is over and it can be hard to address that. You know, when you're on different pages with people, things can get a little bit awkward. Definitely. Yep. And what you're saying there, Hamish, basically, it's too confronting. People that are heavy drinkers simply don't know how to handle sobriety. It's not on their radar. It's so far out of their comfort zone. They can't see out of their boozy bubble. 
it's not really their fault. It's just this booze worshipping culture that we live in. So it does make it tricky. It's so confronting. Yeah. I found that a lot on my on my trip home. I didn't find people questioning my sobriety or trying to talk me out of it, but I did have a lot of friends justifying alcohol oh, to yes. me instead, which is sort of the same side of the coin, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. People just telling me reasons why it's okay to drink or why we drink as a culture or as a society. And I thought, yeah, okay, well, you're not quite seeing it the way yeah. I'm seeing it, which is fine. I often get people saying, oh, I only had two glasses of wine last night. Or, I, I'm doing better sort of thing. Yeah. And I'm sort of like smiling and nodding like, oh, OK, well done, well done. But yeah, I think people do try and justify it to you, which mm. can be a bit confronting in itself because you don't know what to say. Because yeah. you can't say well done for just having two because you almost want to say like shake them on the shoulder and say, try having none. It's so I much know. better. But yeah. also I don't want people to think. You know, friends of mine that do drink, I don't want them to sit opposite me with a beer thinking I'm just sitting here judging them. You of know? course. And I'm it's the other way just, around as well. Yeah. yeah. Which, but I think people do feel that. I think I felt coming to your house before when I did drink and I was aware that you didn't. I was like, oh, I don't want to get drunk in front of her. Like that, yeah. that feels like it's the wrong thing to do. And I kind of, yeah, I hope that people don't think that I'm just silently nodding my head at them going, yeah, yeah. waste of space. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like an internal, being mean internally. <laughs> I am having a party in, in a, a month's time. And that was one of my issues because I said BYO and I wondered whether people thought, oh, gosh, well, does she mean BYO alcohol free drinks or something? Yeah. But of course, I just mean just because I don't drink. It doesn't mean say I hate people that drink. Mm. I love everybody, as we found out. <laughs> love general, the general public. We are available for friendship. You're all invited to the party. <laughs> yeah. Funnily enough, I did accidentally invite 782 people on my Facebook page by, by pressing the wrong button and had to email a few people and say, sorry, that was a mistake. Yeah, so actually, everybody is coming. I actually, I'm doing the rejecting this time, which feels pretty good. <laughs> yeah, much easier than the invites is the rejects. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so people will bring their own alcohol and I don't have a problem with that. Mm. Like, of course, come to a party at my house, I won't be drinking and there will be people there that won't drinking. But I'm accepting of everyone, you know, I'm mm. a pretty laid back person. The last point I wanted to make was about knowing what you want. You understand what makes you happy when you get sober and your boundaries become unbreakable. That means some friends fall by the wayside and it means you may have to work harder to allow some relationships to evolve and move forward. I think this might be a good point in the episode to end this little part one, Vic. This okay, is we're a gonna big topic. We are. We're going to have to do two parts, Hamish. <laughs> We've blathered on, haven't we? We have blathered on. About our terrible friendship histories so long that we've actually taken up a whole episode and we've only done half a podcast. Yeah. So we'll stick a pin in it there. But yeah, next week you will get that's part B of this chat about friendships. Yeah. Oh, that would be good. I'm, I, need to go, I need to know more. <laughs> Said, said no one. Yeah, said no one ever. Yeah. <laughs> we'll just end this episode just with a quote, because I know you love a quote at the end of all our episodes, even though this is going to be split into two. Just remember, a true friend accepts who you are, but also helps you become who you should be. Lovely. <laughs> see you Let's, next week. See you next week. If you're questioning your relationship with booze, you're struggling to moderate, or your hangovers are causing anxiety, it might be time to reach out for some support. Yeah, just talk to a mate about how you're feeling, contact a local doctor, find an AA or sobriety group. Vic's got one. Yeah, just head to www.cuppa.community. Remember, if you're questioning yourself, it might be time to seek support. Even though this journey can be awkward, it is definitely worth it. 
And if you've enjoyed the Sober Awkward podcast, don't forget to review it, rate it, and share it with your mates. Do they have to share it with their mates? Yeah, of course they do. I'm not doing this for nothing, Hamish. Bloody hell. How do they share it? I don't know, just write it on the